A um, couple of things before I get into the text and the message. Um, <clears throat> Margaret Brownlee reached out to me this week and said, how is Susie? Susie Varghese, the Indian woman, single Indian woman I told you about and asked those of you who would to pray for um, several weeks ago. And so I reached out to Susie via WhatsApp and uh, she said she was in, in the hospital at that time and hoped to get out the next day, which would have been this past Wednesday, and that's really all I've heard. Um, she had had to go back to the hospital to have fluid drawn off of her lungs and from around her heart, and my hunch is that was happening again. So about mask, I was thinking, riding down here today, um, you know, 100 years from now, somebody goes into the Smithsonian with their kids, and here's this display of mask, you know, and they say, well, those are the masks they wore back in the pandemic in uh, 20 and 2020 and 21 and 22. And you just can imagine all the, the, the questions that would be asked and all the displays. And they said, well, they thought this and that. And anyway, so you never know. So Luke 9, this is one of those passages that really grabbed my attention early on as a Christian I had grown up in a context of fairly nominal Christianity, uh, it seemed then and, and subsequently, and uh, this passage uh, really shook me um, um, and informed me, and um, so I, it, before we read the text, I want to kind of set it up uh, by uh, a little bit of introduction. If you read and study church history... Uh, you will find that there's nothing new under the sun. You will find that there are certain things that bothered the church uh, back in the New Testament time. And, uh, for instance, disunity in churches. They had that in Corinth, you know, and they had it in spades in Corinth, really. Um, another one that has bothered the church in various ways throughout the history of the church is what I call two-tiered Christianity. Two-tiered Christianity. What do I mean by that? Two-tiered Christianity. Well, probably a, a helpful way to get into that is to uh, haul out an example with which almost all of you will be familiar and say that monasticism is, is a great example of two-tiered Christianity. M what does monasticism tell us? Well, there's more than one acceptable level of commitment to Jesus Christ. There's a higher level. Those are the monks that go up on the mountains into the monasteries and the abbeys. And they're the ordinary guys like you and me that stay down here and support them. There's an A team and a B team. There's a half-hearted commitment and a whole-hearted commitment. There's a serious commitment and a non-serious commitment. There's a complete commitment and a partial commitment. A more recently, we Protestants have experienced that or dealt with that in what was called the carnal Christian theory of the 60s and 70s. A carnal Christian theory was you could make a profession of faith and be a Christian... And then if you were having an affair with your neighbor, well, you were just living carnally. But after all, when you died, you'd go to heaven. Oh, really? Hmm. And, and that same carnal Christian 
controversy uh, reared its head again in the 90s in what was called then the Lordship Salvation Controversy. And it's going to appear again, no doubt, if it has not already. Listen carefully. There are different callings. There are different callings that God makes on lives. He does call some to be in to be teaching elders, and some to be ruling elders, and some to be deacons and other things. He may call some to go up on mountains, although I have serious reservations about that. But there's only one commitment that's acceptable to Jesus Christ. Only one. And this passage talks about it. Jesus never asked anyone to be on the B team to make a half-hearted, semi-committed commitment to Him. Ultimately, this has to do with with the question, what is a Christian? What commitment does Christ require every person? He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. What commitment does He ask? Sometimes... I hope you've never run into these, but I have, it seems to me, pastorally I would say, I've run into people that thinks in, think in terms of a minimum commitment to Jesus. What is the least I can commit to Jesus and still get to heaven when I die? Why would people even think that way? What's the least commitment I can make and still get to heaven when I die? Well, Obviously, a person that would talk that way is not convinced that God is good. He's not, he or she is not convinced that God wants the best for his people. Probably such a person thinks, if I got really serious in my commitment to Jesus, he would mess my life up. Let me respond to that. By saying a couple, one thing and then illustrating it, it seems to me very unwise to make a, take a minimalistic approach to the question of what kind of commitment should I make to Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose a couple is engaged to be married. And uh, the man says to you, I want to make the least commitment to this woman I can make and still get her to marry me, and still get her to be my wife. What would you think of that? You'd think, well, that's crazy. You'd think, well, do you really love her? Do you care about her? Why would you even think that way? That's weird. If you're from the South, you might say, that ain't right, you know? It's just crazy. What? I want to make a minimum commitment? Similarly, to enter into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, wanting to make a minimum commitment seems subpar at best. Because our commitment is not to a creed, it is to a person, a living, resurrected person who deserves and demands a full commitment. Complete commitment. We're going to see in this sermon 
Does the scriptures tell us that it's only, it's only a misguided concern for self, only a misguided concern for self that keeps us from making a maximum commitment to Jesus Christ. Indeed, maximum concern for self should lead us to make maximum commitment to Jesus. Now, after saying all this, I'll say one other thing, and we're going to pray and read. This sermon, at root, is a sermon about outreach. You're going to look at the text and the things I've been saying, and you say, outreach, really? Okay. Because the sermon is going to focus around these things in verses 23 and following, whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I define outreach very broadly, very broadly. What I'm talking about might be at the root of outreach, okay. When you think of outreach, you think about what? Mercy ministries, evangelism, missions, certainly those are forms of outreach. I don't take anything away from them. But I define outreach this way. Outreach is any form of service in which I die to self and reach outside myself to serve other people. That's a pretty broad definition because a definition like that would say, well, when I get out of my comfort zones and I die to self and cook a meal for somebody and take it to them, I've done outreach. Well, you've reached outside yourself. And it root, the root of all outreach is that. I die to myself, my agenda, my comforts, and I do something for somebody else. And given a definition like that, this text really is at the very base or heart of outreach. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand you, what you want, what we should want, what a Christian is, and what a Christian's not. And use a wretchedly sinful crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 9, beginning at verse 18, this is the word of God. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And the you there is plural. He's asking this band of disciples, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered for the group, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words... 
Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade away, but this is God's word. It won't fade. It'll abide forever and forever. I doubt that any of you want a bad life, right? If I ask you, do you want a good life or a bad life, you'd say, that's a crazy question. Of course I want a good life. Everybody wants a good life. We're wired to have that desire for a good life because of our roots with Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, Everyone wants a full, rich, abundant life. We pursue it because we're made in the image of God and we're made for God. The, the, The question, do you want a good life, a full, rich, abundant life, is really not a very interesting question. Everybody does. The really interesting question is how to have a good life. All right? And you've really got two basic choices. God, the maker, um, you you might say, you know, you you go to the store and you buy a new appliance and you open the box and there's the appliance. And in the box there, unless it's all online, (laughs) but most of the time, even today, there are instructions. Here's how to make this thing work. If you want it to do X, Y, and Z, do da, 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 da. Well, God, who made life, gave you an instruction manual. Here it is. And that's one way to pursue a good life. To assume that the God who made us and the God who has revealed himself to us in the scriptures knows what he's talking about, knows how life ought to be lived for the most full and rich and abundant life possible. The other way, the other approach, is to take the world's way which says, well, God's a killjoy, God doesn't really care, God, you know, there's there's this perverse view of God that if I follow God too completely, God really wants to inflict pain and punishment and problems on me, right? And so, the world's way ebbs and flows from age to age and time to time, but at root, it's really pretty much the same in every age. I mean, people will tell you, well, the good life is in acquisition, He who ends the race of life with the most toys won. Or today, some people would say the good life is purging. Or self-serving accomplishments. Some of you are overachievers, and you did that because you wanted to build a reputation for yourself. You wanted to build up a fragile identity. Some of us uh, want to have a good life by manipulating, controlling other people. Uh, and be served by other people. If we can manipulate people to do what we want them to do for us, that makes us happy. We think that's the good life. Um, Or we want to be entertained. Being entertained is the good life. Did you notice during the Olympics, by the way, that I won't give you any percentages, but there were so many that I began to notice that the ads were ads for entertainment. Go to this movie. Subscribe to this streaming service. Come let us entertain you. That's the good life. That's what they were telling you. You'll have a good life if you you let us entertain you. Really? And and other people in various ways at various times have said, well, the good life is just self-indulgence. You know? This passage talks about God's way for a good life, the rich, full, abundant life. And it's the opposite of what the culture will tell you 
And it's the opposite of what our fallen intuitions will tell us. Let's look quickly first up at verse 18 in Peter's wonderful confession. Um, God in the Bible, you know, is revealing himself. Someone's already said that in this service. What he's doing is revealing himself. He reveals himself in creation and he reveals himself in redemption and preeminently he reveals himself in Jesus Christ. He wants us to know what he is like. That is to his glory. And um, if you look back in chapter 8 and earlier in chapter 9, people say they don't know who God is, right? They don't know who God is. Well, Herod said in Luke 9, 7, 8, 9, he didn't know who, what God was like. Um, so in this section, they're going to conf- correctly confess that Jesus is the Christ and, and, and they know his identity and, and that it has been revealed to him. So there's this paradox of prayer in verse 18. The disciples are with him and he's praying alone. So I I don't know what that means. Maybe it's like at Gethsemane and he's gone away a distance from them and he's praying alone. Maybe he's praying on some kind of different spiritual plane than they are. Or or, or maybe um, um, he's the only one praying. I I don't really know. Um, But why is Jesus praying? Well, I think he's praying because of and for relationship with the Father. I think he needs guidance from the Father and and power from the Father for the ministry that the Father's given him to do. And for some reason, Jesus asked this question because I think he wants to elicit from them a confession that he gets. Who do the crowds say that I am? And so they throw out these various answers, which are all inadequate. We know they're inadequate because Jesus says, but what do you say? And Peter, as I said earlier, answering from the group, for the group said, uh, you're the Christ of God. You're the Christ of God. You're the chosen one. You're the one who's going to rule in the eternal kingdom. You're the one anointed by the Spirit to bring full and final salvation to the people of God. And, and in Matthew's account of this passage, it tells us that they, they have had that revealed to them, which no doubt they have. But then he makes this odd warning in verse 21. He says, don't go tell anybody. I mean, it's like you've been told your team's going to win the national championship, but don't go tell anybody. It's it's really strange. Did you notice that? They just confessed him as the Christ, and then he strictly charged them, commanded them to tell this to no one. Really? Wow, that's kind of strange. Well, but yes, but his time had not yet come. He's got to suffer on the cross and be vindicated by the resurrection And he cannot be made king before the cross. That was the temptation that Satan made, become king without the cross. He cannot do that. So he says, don't tell anybody right yet who I am. Then secondly in the passage, beginning in verse 22 and following, there's some what I call vitally important necessities. Uh, You'll notice in verse 22 it says, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things. The, The little word must is a three-letter word in Greek that uh, indicates a type of divine necessity. It cannot be otherwise. It cannot be otherwise than that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now one of the things you can miss in this passage is you can read over the title for Jesus there, Son of Man. So he's just been called the Christ of God in verse 20. 
But now in verse 22, he's called the Son of Man. Well, I won't take the time to develop, but develop it, but if you go back, and particularly into Daniel chapter 7 and some other places, the Son of Man is a, is a title of glory. It's a title that has glory associated with it. We, ha- we tend to think maybe, because it says Son of Man, and may- perhaps we've been taught that it has to do with, with, his, with his humbling of himself, that he'd be called Son of Man. But, but the scriptural meaning is actually the opposite. It, it means glory. The glorious Son of Man. And then it goes right into suffering. The Son of Man, the glorious Son of Man must suffer. He must suffer many things, be rejected by all the movers and shakers in Jewish religiosity at that time. He's going to be killed, but on the third day he's going to be raised. So it's kind of like a combo meal, right? The the Son of Man, the glorious Son of Man, must suffer. Uh, This is kind of incongruous, isn't it? Do these things fit together? Well, we wouldn't think so normally, but of course in terms of the plan of God, they fit together perfectly because in fact for us to be redeemed for our sins to be atoned for 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 the scriptures to be fulfilled uh, for God's people to be saved for Jesus to experience the joy that was set before him for Jesus to give us a pattern of how to live it all had to happen it was necessary divinely necessary it's not just that it did happen it happened according to God's plan because it had to happen. Thirdly, in verses 23 and following, Jesus gives guidance about the good life. And notice he broadens it out. He's been talking to his disciples, uh, a restricted group uh, in 18 to 22, but then he says to all, and I think it has a broader intent than just to the disciples. He said, if anyone would come after me, If anyone wants to be with me, if anyone wants to go to heaven when they die, if anyone wants to follow me into glory. You know, in John 17, Jesus prayed in verse, what, 24, Father, I pray for them that they might be with me where I am. And and in John 14, he says, I go away and prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. I mean, that's God's plan. So when he says, if anyone would come after me, he's saying, what, if anyone would be with me? If anyone would dwell with me? If anyone would be saved by me? If anyone would be a part of my band of disciples? He says the key thing, it's a singular thing, he says, let him deny himself. Start there. Deny yourself. First, come to Jesus. What do you have to deny? Well, deny your goodness. Admit you're not good. Come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Quit trusting in your own deeds to save yourself. Embrace Jesus. Be forgiven. Be reconciled to God. Is that all? Well, I don't think so. Not the way he presents it here. Then continue to renounce your old nature. Your old nature that's reinforced by culture. Renounce what your old nature and your culture tell you about success and happiness and the good life. Renounce what the, what the world and perhaps your fallen intuitions passionately preach to you about the good life. That you'll be happy if you have a lot of stuff. 
If you will give your life to indulgence, you will be happy. If you will accomplish things for the glory of self, you will be happy. If you will be entertained, you will be happy. If you will control and manipulate other people, you will be happy. He says, deny that. Deny that. Reject that as a way of life. In Luke 14, he's going to tell them, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's saying you've got to renounce family and friends as objects of ultimate concern. I read an article in 1997, I think. Um, the, the article is entitled Self-Indulgent Self-Fulfillment. And in that, there's this quote. Someone asked the famous psychiatrist Carl Menninger his advice for a person suffering from depression. Instead of saying, consult a psychiatrist, he surprised his audience by saying, lock up your house, go across the railroad, railroad, railway tracks, find someone in need, and do something to help that person. Really? Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. What does it mean to take up your cross daily? Well, a cross is an instrument of death. No doubt about that. Uh, what I'm saying now uh, in this part of the passage is very close to what I said in the sermon on devotion to God from Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, a devoted thing is a dead thing, right? If you took a sacrifice and said, I devote this to God, what are they going to do? They're going to slit its throat and they're going to... They're going to kill it. And what he's saying that when he says take up your cross daily is to devote yourself to God daily. He's not saying kill yourself because he's saying do it daily, right? You couldn't do it daily if he meant it literally. He's saying to die to self daily. It's to be a way of life, to live as those alive from the dead, to use the language of Romans 6 is to present ourselves to God as living sacrifices, to use the language of Romans 12. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Keep on following me. Follow me geographically, morally, missionally, in, in, in terms of worldview and vision and purpose and what life's all about. And after he says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me, he gives three Verses that all begin with the word for. Did you notice that? Look at the text. If you got your Bible open. If you don't, you could open it. It's not too heavy. Verse 24, 4. Verse 25, 4. Verse 26, 4. And he gives three explanations, three encouragements, three expansions, whatever you want to call them. Whoever will save his life must lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does that mean? Well, losing your life is dying to yourself and to your agenda and to your praise and to your fame. It's to give your life away. It's to give your life away. You say, that'll help me? That'll give me the full, rich, abundant life? 
Ask a mother of young children. Is that fulfilling? Is that joyful? It's a 24-7 job. You deal with poop diapers and throw up and everything else. Is that a good thing? Die to self? Serve the agenda of somebody else? That'll be fulfilling? I think so. We just don't think of it that way. The world doesn't tell us that every day. He's saying, look, you cannot cling to your life. You cannot be selfish with your life and serve God's purposes or your own. Or your own. It's a paradox. It's a paradox about the good life. The world says, you want to be happy and have a good life? Serve yourself, buy things for yourself, indulge yourself, pamper yourself. Jesus said, you want to have a good life? You want to be fulfilled? You want to be abundant and joyful? Serve other people, die to self every day. But it's a radical difference, isn't it? It really is. It really, really is. That's the first four, verse 24. Verse 25. He's talking about profit here. That ought to ring some bells, right? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Is that I can gain a whole lot in this life and still lose or forfeit my life eternally? Yeah, that's what he's saying. That a person's life does not consist in the abundance of his or her possessions. That being cool or hip does not really count eternally. Verse 26 is another four statement. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. What does that mean? Well, it's interesting that in Hebrews there's a verse that says God is not ashamed to be called their God. And he's saying that we're not to be ashamed of God, of Jesus and Jesus' words. Or the Son of Man might be ashamed of us when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels. So, when a mass shooting occurs and they identify the shooter, sometimes they will have interviews uh, with the family of the shooter. And they're always what? Incredibly ashamed. How can God not be ashamed to be our God since all of us are the moral equivalent of mass shooters? And the answer is the gospel. The substitutionary life and death of Jesus Christ in a forgiveness that removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west, as Dave read. And he gives this final encouragement in verse 27, saying they would, some of them standing there would not be dead until they saw the kingdom of God, which ties into a sermon I approached, preached not long ago about uh, the kingdom is a present tense reality because of Jesus' life and death and ministry. And so he's enticing them to see the kingdom of God and promising some of them that they would see it before they die. So, let me wind this up this way. There's a two-tiered 
type of Christianity out there, sad to say. And some of us have that kind of mindset. I'll I'll just make a minimalistic commitment. Uh, I don't want to get too serious about Jesus. Why would you do that? You wouldn't do that with your spouse, right? Because you wouldn't have a good relationship with your spouse. You want a good relationship with Jesus? It's deeper than that, though. Because the summary of this is that following Jesus is the way to save your life, to have real life. The following Jesus is the way to real lasting profit, that he is the pearl of great price, to use another phrase in the scriptures. That following Jesus is the way to avoid shame at the judgment. But as Bonhoeffer reminded us in that famous quote, to follow Jesus is to come and die. You know, Bonhoeffer said when Jesus bids a man come and follow him, he bids him come and die. Not literally, but die to self, to serve others. And so we need to think about these things and take them to account and ask if we've gotten something fundamentally kind of messed up in our thinking about an approach to Jesus Christ. How we respond to Jesus now in space and time history will determine our future with Jesus. He's certainly telling us that, and other scriptures do too. If we do not identify with him in the present, there's no reason to expect him to identify with us when he comes in his glory. And so, do it now if you have not. Identify him with, now, with him now. Put your faith in Jesus. Sell out to Jesus. Why would you hold anything back from a God who says, I love you and I want the best for you and I have a wonderful plan? Come and walk in that plan. Why does such a devotion to Jesus, a deep and costly devotion to Jesus. Why is it like that? Well, he's the Christ of God. The divine necessities in 21 and 22 are for us because we want to follow after him and see with him and be with, see him and be with him and be made like him and because we want to save in li- our lives and because we want enduring profit and because we want him not to be ashamed of us when he returns in his glory. What do we need? What do we need? We need faith. We need faith not only to believe that that Jesus is the Christ, but to believe in Jesus, to commit our way to Jesus, to give ourselves over to Jesus, to say to Jesus, you are right, and to say to the world, you are wrong. And here is one of the the ways to talk about or summarize some of the things I've been saying. The world says that happiness can be had instantaneously. And, you know, you've experienced that. Some of you uh, probably have the struggle I do. When I buy things sometimes, and I won't tell you what kinds of things because they're so trivial you would laugh at me, okay? So I don't want to be that transparent, all right? So if, sometimes when I buy things, I just feel better, right? You just feel better. 
In the 1950s, when, they, when, when a woman was depressed, they would say, she should go buy a hat. You don't do that anymore, but that's, what, that's the version. See, it's, I can talk about that because it's distant. It's easy. You, go buy a hat. Go buy a new outfit. Do this. You'll feel better. For how long? <laughs> Not very long. Not very long. Because those things will not satisfy a soul made in the image of God. Augustine taught us that. There's this part of us that cannot be filled with anything other than God. And when you try to fill it with accomplishment and, 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 and acquisitions and, and being pampered and controlling other people. It won't satisfy your soul, friend. It will not satisfy your soul. And what, what Jesus is teaching us here, and this is very careful. Listen carefully because your faith will be misplaced if you don't get this. Happiness comes indirectly. My grandkids were over last night and they, they had ice cream. And, and what happens when you give kids ice cream? Whoopee, man, instantaneously almost. Sugar. Wow, right? And so we want to live a life like that. I want that kind of high. I want it that instantly. Doesn't come that way. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Believe that the hard fulfillment you long for can only come indirectly by dying to self and serving other people. That takes faith, brothers and sisters takes a lot of faith to say my agenda's wrong. The man who wrote that article in 1997 I mentioned earlier has this quote, and I, I close with this. Medicine only cures, cures you if you take it. Jesus' prescription is first to die to self by humbly, thankfully receiving the forgiveness of and eternal life God offers through the cross of Christ. Then, begin to follow Him in a life of self-denying service for others. As you do this, you'll delightfully find as a byproduct the happiness you formerly sought through self-fulfillment. Takes faith. Let's all commit to that, okay? Let's pray. Lord, our God, um, forgive us that we have played the fool, thinking that acquisitions could fill our hearts and give us peace and joy, to think that controlling others would be a way to feel good in a fundamental way, to think that, forgive us, that we thought that a minimalistic commitment to you would bring us joy doesn't bring us joy and it doesn't bring you glory. 